Hey everybody, welcome to the Guard Post Podcast, a podcast where we talk about the New York Guardians and everything football. I take more of an analytical approach when analyzing it. I take a look at film, I take a look at trends, I take a look at scheme, and I apply that all to my analysis of the games and the players and how they played in a specific game. So if you're coming here for more football knowledge, I'm going to try to drop all that I know on you and make sure you get a good understanding of what's going on in the game from a scheme and and game flow perspective. First things first, thank you, Rob Rob Graphics, for the new logo. It looks amazing. You can look at it on Twitter and on Instagram. I'm still trying to get it onto my Apple and Spotify podcast like the logo. It has to be a certain size, so I'm going to adjust that here soon and get it on there. But I just want to thank everybody for the love and support I've gotten for it. you got to thank Rob Rob Graphics, who you can find on all social medias, at Rob Rob Graphics. Fantastic guy he's great at graphic design so make sure you go give him a look when you're taking a look at that now we're going to go ahead and get into what's in this episode the first things that first mike mitchell is back with a great interview we talk about the game against st louis we talk about what happened against the defenders this past saturday and how the guardians can rebound then i go ahead and get into my true accuracy segment where i it's much more regimented this time i talk about stats that i like stats that i didn't like a lot more that I didn't like from this game from Matt McGloin, and I get a little bit into what Marquise Williams did and why he may not be the answer. And then the last piece of our show today is the preview of the game against St. Louis. I talk about what the offense can and can't do and what the defense cannot and can do, they have to do in this game coming up. Thank you guys for listening once again. Cue the intro. This is your host, Zachary Garten, and this is The Guard Post. What's up, everybody? I want to welcome Mike Mitchell, a writer for the XFL board and the guy you should go to if you're looking for anything um, New York Guardians. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Zachary, for having me on. Absolutely, absolutely. So we can go ahead and get right into it. We're going to talk about this game against the D.C. Defenders. What were your immediate takeaways after the game? I was I was really disappointed in Matt McGloin because one of the reasons he was recommended by Andy Reid to the Guardians and what, one of the reasons why he was named the starter the New York Guardians was his veteran leadership. He's the only player on the entire team that's 30 years old or more. He's 30. And so they brought him in so they would bring in an experienced NFL player to lead the offense. And, um, you know, I guess he did had a bad day at the office there. And the offense, kinda, it was kind of lost in their week one loss and their week one win against Tampa that, you know, they struggled mightily on offense in week one. They were one of 10 on third down. They um, McGloin missed some open receivers and open targets in that game. And it was kind of the, the victory over Tampa was camouflaged by, by a very good defensive effort and even some big plays on special teams, a long field goal, long kick return, that kind of thing. So, um, seeing New York come out and play as poorly as they did in D.C. Uh, was very discouraging. And now it's kind of a huge bounce back week coming up for the Guardians as they go on the road to play St. Louis in front of that packed house in the zone. Oh, yeah. So I got to say, though, it wasn't the fact that the Guardians lost. It was how they lost that was really troubling. Oh, yeah. yeah, I agree. Um, definitely. Like when I look at my um, game notes from when I watched the game, I just noticed that like, the whole team just seemed to look kind of slow against DC. I know DC is a very fast team. They're built with speed in mind. But when you just watch the game over, you just 
feel like they looked super slow in all aspects of the game. You know, and a big part of football is you can have all the speed and athleticism in the world, but if you don't know where you're supposed to be or where you're supposed to go, it doesn't matter. Oh, yeah. And DC just DC just seemed like a team that was assignment driven. That knew exactly what they're going to do. They're very talented to begin with. They've got a lot of really good athletes, particularly on the offensive side of the ball. Oh yeah. And New York looked kind of lost there. And you can put that a little bit on the coaching staff for sure. They just they weren't in sync at all. And DC was two steps ahead of them, uh, mentally and physically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just we can go ahead and get into. Um... A little bit of that on offense, a little bit of the controversy. I know there's a whole thing about Matt McGloin with his comments off the field, and that's kind of what we wanted when we talk about the XFL and access. So I'm not too mad about his comments off the field. It's a little bit disappointing, but being on the sideline before. Yeah, I'm not mad. I'm not. I'm not upset about his comments because that's a regular thing. We're just okay. as XFL fans, XFL viewers. That's something that we're just, you know, we're getting an opportunity to peek behind the curtain to see what people say on the sidelines in the heat of the moment and in frustration. So I get that part of this with Matt McGloin. I just I just feel like, you know, he had no faith in the game plan itself and he was very vocal about it. Mm-hmm. And usually uh, when you're in that position as a quarterback or a leader, even if you feel that way, it's not something you really express. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they kind of, kind of put on a front, you know, mm-hmm. um, even though, and, you know, they're fully aware that they're, their um, their every action and every reaction is going to be recorded. It's going to be out there for everyone to see. Mm-hmm. So it just wasn't a good day at the office for Matt McGloin. You know, he said as much. It was like a reality show. We kind of got a peek behind the curtain. He said he had no faith in the game plan and the faith in anything working. It was the worst game he's ever been a part of. These are direct quotes from him. So you know, it, it just didn't work out on that front. And the team, you know, the team wasn't ready to go. And so this week they're having a lot of closed-door meetings, and Matt McGloin is still going to be the starter for the Guardians. And they're, yep. they're trying to get all on the same page. Kevin Gilbride, to his credit, is trying to make sure that the team sticks together um, and doesn't splinter, as he said. So um, it, it was a you know, disheartening loss, but they, they don't have time to lick their wounds. They have to be prepared for St. Louis. To oh, yeah. that. that team, that St. Louis team is really good, too, so it's going to be a really tough game for them to really bounce back in. Let's go ahead and talk about not just Matt McGloin, but some of these other factors on offense that may have caused them to score zero points on on Saturday. Were there any other issues you saw on this offensive as a group? Like, for example, like maybe the offensive line play or any other position groups that really kind of struggled on Saturday? Uh, definitely the offensive line was a huge issue for the Guardians on Saturday against the defenders. They were missing two of their starting linemen um, with Garrett Brumfield and Ian Silverman in center. Uh, these are two players that emerged at the end of camp that were healthy and did a very good job for the Guardians. And so you don't want to make a huge excuse, but anytime you're looking to fifth with your offensive line, that's a fact, especially early on in the season when you're still trying to build continuity with that unit. And you can see Matt McGuire was having trouble stepping up in the pocket and didn't have a lot of time. That's a credit to DC's defense as well. So I think um, if getting those two back would be very important for the team. Now, they did pick up Damian Mama. And Avery Young in training camp, so those are two veteran guys that stepped in, but it disrupted the, the team on the offensive side of the ball. And I think that was one of the issues with the Guardians' struggle. Oh yeah, definitely. And I mean, when I watched the offensive line again in the replay of the game, 
I noticed that even it wasn't just the interior offensive line. I thought they, considering the two injuries, I thought they played pretty decently for what happened to them injury-wise. It's kind of tough for guys like Damian Mama, who's not traditionally a center, to step in and play that. I know he had one bad snap, but otherwise he played decently throughout the game. But really what we struggled with a little bit is that outside pressure. I know Jaron Jones gave up quite a few, actually, pressures on that at that left tackle spot and really has kind of struggled through these two games. Do you think that's something that we can see possibly fixed in the future? I know there's a big news about us, the um, XFL signing. That's one of the most, you know, it's one of, yeah, that's a very good point you bring up about Darren Jones. And he's very disappointed with himself after the game there. Um, that's one of those areas on a football team that is very difficult to shore up. Oh, yeah. Uh, anytime you have an MA, and the, the Guardians have invested a lot in him with their top draft pick in the offensive line draft back in October. Jones is a talented guy physically, but he's very raw. Mm-hmm. I mean, he played defensive line in college at Notre Dame, and since he's become a pro, since he came out of college, he's been transitioning to playing the offensive line. So I think, you know, New York might have to decide whether they're going to make a change there, maybe move Jaron over uh, to, to the opposite side or, mm-hmm. or probably try someone else out there. Brad, Brad Weiss comes to mind as someone who could potentially play out there. Yeah. Uh, they're going to have to make some tough decisions if Jones continues to struggle against speed rushers and they're going up oh, against yeah. a, a talented front in St. Louis. So um, Andrew Anker and everybody else there with the Battle Hawks. So that, that could be problematic uh, moving forward. And that's unfortunate because the Guardians do have high hopes because they oh, took yeah. him very high. The whole idea behind drafting him that high was they projected him to be their blindside protector for whomever the quarterback is. So that's a very good observation in your point, Zach. I mean, for sure, that's something that the Guardians have to monitor closely moving forward. All right, so we just talked about how our O-line's kind of struggling with, might struggle with the St. Louis pass rush. Let's talk about our defensive line now and how they really struggled, at least in my eyes, to get any consistent pressure and really make Cardell Jones uncomfortable on Saturday I noticed that we looked really slow on the defensive line part. We weren't able to get to Cardell Jones at all consistently. I was wondering what your take on that was. You know, it wasn't a good matchup, too, uh, for them. New York has built uh, a power base up front. They have, you know, large defensive linemen with uh, T.J. Barnes and Joey Embu and company. So, um, really, I know uh, Bunny Lutini has played well uh, thus far in the first two weeks, but... Uh, Opponents like Cardell Jones, a mobile quarterback like Jordan Tayama, who they're going to face in St. Louis, you need more speed rushers on the field. And that was one of the areas that I was concerned with New York uh, heading into the season was whether they'd be able to generate enough of a pass rush. When you have 350-pound defensive linemen and three of them as your starter in that 330 to 350 range, you're going to need you're going to need guys who can play throughout the entire game at a high level. And those jumbo-sized players tend to wear down. You have to rotate them in and out. So I think it's, uh, I think it's a situation where uh, Harmon, the defensive coordinator there, is going to have to find the right lineup, and he's going to have to uh, be comfortable with a rotation that maximizes the talent that New York has. And we knew... Uh, when they faced Tampa, that they would, you know, that, that they would have an easier time against Aaron Murray, not to say that he doesn't have some mobility, but they were able to get to him five times. The coverage is very good. Well, coverage stacks don't really work against someone who is as talented as Cardell Jones is, because he can extend plays, escape the pocket, exactly. 
not go down at first contact. So um, that was a that was not a good matchup for for New York's front facing off for Cardell. They're going to have to face him again the end of the season, they're going to have to have a better game plan against them. Absolutely. I'd expect us at least to deal with mobile quarterbacks. I'd fully expect Jim Herman, who I think has done a pretty decent job as a defensive coordinator throughout these two games, like calling plays and mixing up coverages. I just think that maybe he might bring in more blitzing against these faster and more mobile quarterbacks because that's what we're going to have to do to get pressure on them. Because we saw it against Aaron Murray, some of these kind of different blitzes really made him uncomfortable and he's not as mobile. So we ended up getting sacks. If we bring those blitzes against mobile quarterbacks, it might work in making them feel more uncomfortable. I'm hoping we start involving that more in the game plan. We did not blitz a whole lot against the defenders. I noticed. So hopefully that's something that changes. Yeah. To pick your poison thing. Sometimes you, you blitz someone like Cardell Jones and you worry about the speed on the outside that the defenders have with Ross and with DeAndre Thompson. So, so, but I agree with you that Herman did some good things the first two weeks, especially mixing things up. And the loss in the, the ugly um, defeat that they, the Guardians had against the defenders was how uh, New York's defense was actually getting off the field. Uh, they had stopped uh, D.C. on several occasions. They had only given up one touchdown the entire game until late in the game there with D.C. drive thrown for a final score there. Um so they kept New York in the game. New York was only down 12 nothing, which is like a manageable deficit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was some good things that Herman and his staff did, and he's going to have to get a, uh, a little more creative when they're facing a mobile quarterback like a Cardell Jones or like a Jordan Tehamel, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope maybe, I don't think this will happen, but um, maybe we look at the Team 9 and see if they have any um, fast speed rushers because I feel like we need at least one of them on the roster. And I really don't feel that any of our guys are really built for that. I, Bumny Rotini is a really cool talent, really interesting talent, but what I've noticed with him is he's even a little bit better at one of those inside pass rusher spots. I remember specifically there was like three or four plays at the end of the first half that he was really just pass rushing from like maybe a three or four tech right inside the tackle or right on top of the guard. And he was just manhandling the opponent opposing guard because it was a better matchup for him. I noticed sometimes when he's playing on that tackle spot, he kind of goes in without a plan, trying to do the speed rush, but not really succeeding because he's not the fastest player. So I think if we possibly look into getting another speed rusher, we can move Bumi Rotimi inside a little bit, and he'll be a whole lot more effective there. I agree. I mean, that's something they're going to have to do moving forward. They're going to have to get a little bit smaller up front. You know, the, I know with the 25-second play clock, it's sometimes hard to sub in and out players, but you want to get the opposing teams into third and long, into passing situations, and then you want to put receiving and others like that on the field. And I think New York is definitely a candidate for, uh, you know, for potentially making a trade to try to get a pass rusher. Um, it would have been nice if they had gotten someone like Anthony Johnson who ended up wrecking havoc. <laughs> he was wrecking havoc on... New York's front on Saturday he certainly paid dividends quickly for the defenders, that's for sure. So uh, New York is definitely going to be in the market for that, either through Team 9, through free, uh, some free agent pickup, or perhaps uh, through a trade. Yeah, they need to uncover a pass rusher, and I think they need to you know, make better use of the defensive talent they have up front. I think oh, yeah. trusting the secondary, too, would be, because they do have a talented secondary, they need to uh, not be too scared of blitzing. And, and and leaving their corners out uh, on an island. I know New York had some issues on the back end against D.C., yeah. but I think a lot of that has to do with Cardell having time to throw the football. Mm-hmm. Um, 
more so than uh, the corners just getting flat out beat left and right. Yeah, absolutely. I noticed when I watched, we can talk about the secondary right now real quick, but I, when I watched them again, I noticed that there was one or two maybe zone errors, but that happens in every game. There will be like one guy that's running a cover three that really kind of plays a little bit too far inside and allows a fade route, which happened to Jamar Summers. But overall, I think they pretty well played pretty well. Bryce Jones struggled with a little bit of Eli Rogers' speed throughout the game, which I really noticed was pretty evident, especially early on. But if we had put our guys on an island more, maybe blitzed an extra linebacker or blitzed, blitzed one of our safeties, I think we would have been a lot more successful in stopping Cardo Jones. So what did you think about the defensive backfield and how they played against the defenders? I, I thought, you know, they, they could have played better, but I thought overall, I thought they played well. Uh, credit to D.C. D.C.'s got a talented group. Mm-hmm. Eli Rogers, you mentioned, a polished veteran. So, um, so Bryce Jones had some issues there, but I think Bryce Jones has been okay so far. I think, I, I you know, I think New York's weakness in the back end of their secondary is their lack of size. When you worry about a matchup like St. Louis, who doesn't have a lot of speed burners on the outside, and, but they do have a lot of size at the receiver position. Yeah. Uh, Damian Washington, you know, Colin Aguilar-Dosey, uh, these are six, 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 four players. So um, you're going to see you're going to see the the Battle Hawks try to muscle and uh, the uh, Guardian defensive backs in the run game and and in close quarters in the red zone. So um, it's going to be it's going to be very interesting for them. I thought the Guardians I think the Guardian secondary has played well mm-hmm. the first two weeks of the season, but you know they have, it's just basically pro football is and college football for that matter is matchup driven. So. It's going to be a, a huge key is going to be how the defense coordinator Herman and his coaching staff utilizes the players that they have. Yeah, definitely. I can definitely agree with that. And then when you look at that, especially you brought up manhandling our corners and safeties in the run game. That's the one part of their game where they kind of struggled on Saturday as they're tackling. I noticed a lot of missed tackles on the outside. And as the defense, a lot of missed tackles. How do you think that's going to affect this next game, upcoming game against St. Louis, do you think we're going to shore that up on a, as a defense on a whole, or do you think we'll struggle again with our tackling? They, they need to shore that up because while I'm a huge fan of Jamar Summers and Matthew Tejada and Bryce Jones and all these talented uh, cover players that the Guardians have in their secondary, um, they're not; these guys are not very physical. So they're going to need to be physical against St. Louis because they have physical wide receivers. St. Louis is very committed to running the football. And uh, so, so you're, you know, I, there are players in the Guardian secondary that are pretty good physical players, and sometimes that plays to their benefit. Sometimes it does. Uh, trying to go for the home, for the knockout blow every time you come up to make a play. I'm a fan of the playing style of Andrew Soro, who's a big time hitter. Um, and, you know, I like him with the Chiefs and the Florida Atlantic, and so far I've liked what I've seen from him oh, in yeah. terms of his physicality. But I think the corners on New York are going to need to, like their defensive back coach, Chris Dishman, uh, show the ability to, to step up and tackle in the open field. Oh, yeah. And that's going to be very important on uh, this coming weekend against St. Louis. Oh, yeah, I can definitely see that. And then we'll hold off on talking about that game a little more till till just a little bit later. I'm going to ask you some other questions about what's going on this week with the team. So you brought it up a little bit earlier about Matt McGloin most likely being the starter against St. Louis, he's pretty much confirmed to be the starter in everything other than report just from 
what I've heard from Gilbride and other sources around the team. But how short of a leash do you think he has going into St. Louis? Do you think if he has a bad game, he's going to get benched for Marquise Williams? And if so, do you think there's another answer on the roster at quarterback if Matt McGloin continues to play not very well? Yeah, the, big, the big question is, is Luis Perez ready yet? So I don't know if he is. He's been with the team now for a few weeks. Um, you know, Marquise Williams would be the next man up. I think Luis Perez is brought in to basically be uh, a long-term quarterback, someone who's down the line can get the opportunity. As far as Matt McGloin goes, you know, he can't have a repeat performance. He has to play within himself and within the scheme. He has to make plays. I mean, the other guys around him have to play well, too. There's no question about that. But if McGloin goes out there and has a bad first half and it's just ugly, they, they, the hook would come pretty quickly. I hope, I hope it doesn't uh, for his sake. I would love to see him redeem himself and have a great week and kind of like silence a lot of his critics. Because I feel like it's one thing to be critical of someone for how they play on the football field. That's fair game. Mm-hmm. But um, I think I think his character is called into question. So his yeah. character as a football player, and that's a tough one. So you kind of like you uh, because you know you have one bad day, and so people people start to label you as someone who's selfish or not really a good leader, that kind of thing. So I think Matt McLean has a lot to prove. I think he can prove himself to to his teammates and to all the doubters like going out there and playing within himself and playing like Matt McGloin. Matt McGloin has been a respectable level quarterback his whole career. He's never been a star, but he's, you know, he's always performed well. Yeah. So uh, going out there and led teams to victories and made big plays in the past, and he's been a good player. So um, never a star, like I said, but a good player his whole entire career. That's why he's in the position he's in now. So I think, I think this is a crucial week for him. You don't, want him to lose the team or to hold the team back in any way. So, um, And I don't know if the other options are ready for that role. He's one of the talented guys. He's got a yeah. big arm. I guess he would be next man up. And then if it doesn't work out with him, it would be Luis. Yeah. So uh, that's, that's where it stands right now. Absolutely. And one of those things that I think is going to have to come with McGloin possibly playing better is definitely – this offense changing a little bit. These past two games, they've been very downfield, a lot of downfield passes, but Mac McGloin's really struggled with those. So I'm curious what you think is going to happen with this offense. Do you think they stay the course and stay a very vertical downfield passing type of offense, or do you think they shorten it up, go maybe a little bit more West Coast and maybe focus on the run game a little bit more? Uh, I agree. Maybe they could add some different elements to the offense. Um, Mangus has a background in the fun and gun with Steve Spurrier, and I can see why, based on some of the talent they have on their roster, why they want to take shots vertically down the field. However, uh, those are not very high percentage plays. Um, so, and McGloin's capable of making those plays, even though he's not known for a cannon arm. You know, one thing that's missing from this offense is still the better receivers mm-hmm. are still on short-term injured reserve in Tanner Gentry and D'Angelo Yancey. I have to think McGloin and the entire offense would have more success if those two players were around. They could use um, a more concentrated game plan on um, more higher percentage plays um, and passing plays to just to get the offense going. 
um, someone who can work in the slot, who can make plays for them. So they're going to have to make do with what they have on the roster currently. And I would, I would still say, you know, they, they should take shots down the field with Hale Redding and Mikhail McKay, et cetera. But they have to be a little more versatile on offense. They have been very versatile in the game plan. So, um, and more of a concentration on the run game. They have two very hard-nosed runners in, uh, in Cook and Victor. And both these players need to be utilized. And so the Guardians, the problem with the Guardians is they, you know, too many three and outs. They've only had two first downs on offense in the first two weeks. So um, it's hard to um, get the run game going if you're not converting on third down or getting first down. So, so that's kind of the story there. But I do agree. I think they need to show a little more variety in offense. And I think they need to work the underneath game, the quick passing game, mm-hmm. and start attacking other areas of the field, not just just swinging it downfield and seeing what happens. That's, that's never been a successful um, formula. Especially not pro football with the talent and speed on defenses. And then when you look at it, when I watched Matt McGloin, I noticed, especially this last game on Saturday, he looked really uncomfortable from the very beginning. And I think if we focus on those a little bit shorter passing game, maybe more like five to 15 yard range, getting hit slants, ins, quick outs, these high percentage pass plays, it'll make him more comfortable later in the game when you want to take a couple more shots on like a second and one or third and one because it'll get him used to reading the defense and different things like that. Things he is able to do just when he's uncomfortable, he doesn't really focus on them. So, Right. I agree. I agree totally. You can you see a little bit last week, the Guardians were trying to go to more of a screen game, but I agree they need to use more areas of the field with plants and other routes there. Um, and getting uh, McGloin at a comfort level would be great. So oh, yeah. Those first couple opening series this coming weekend are going to be very important for the entire offense. I think the Guardians get off to a decent start and they're functioning. Um, I think the team will start to build confidence. So so it's going to be, you know, and, and those types of plays that you mentioned, that can help. Oh, yeah. So now let's go ahead and move on to this next game against St. Louis. What do you think? the Guardians need to focus on offensively and defensively to win this game against St. Louis? Well, they need to survive the early onslaught because they're walking into a situation where the atmosphere is going to be electric. Um, You know, the St. Louis is going to get a huge boost emotionally from the crowd on hand. But I think if, like in any situation with any team on the road, if you can get on top early and put some doubt into the home team, uh, that can help you. You kind of like you want to avoid that first tidal wave at the beginning of the game. Don't want uh, the home team to jump on you early, and then they'll have all the momentum, and then you're, you know, climbing up the hill for the entire game, trying to get back at even, um, and then it's hard to crawl out of. I can see why the odds makers uh, nearly have the Battle Hawks as ten point favorites because it's a very difficult spot for New York to go into. Um, but New York also has to be motivated for this game because if they were to somehow to find a way to win, they would be two and one in the division, and two of the teams they're competing with right now directly for a potential playoff spot. I know it's still only week three, but they would have victories over Tampa and St. Louis, two of the teams that they would be trying to compete with to get into the playoffs. Because as you know, exactly the top two teams in each division make the playoffs at the end of the season, so. Um, this is a huge game. I mean, at the end of the world, if New York loses against St. Louis, you want them to obviously have a better effort 
than they had last week against DC. But if they were to somehow find a way to win, they would change the makeup of their entire season and just kind of wash away what happened in DC. And St. Louis is a good football team. I, I've been really impressed with how they played the first two weeks on the road since Dallas and Houston. So um, from from just an emotional standpoint and from the significance of the game itself, uh, I think this would be huge if New York could, could find a way to, to win this one. Uh, the odds are against them for sure. It's not going to be easy. Yeah, like you brought up earlier, this football is a game of matchups, especially at these higher levels. And this is not, when I look at the paper, it's not a good matchup for the Guardians. The St. Louis really thrives running the football, and that's one of the things defensively that the Guardians struggle with the most, which is kind of odd considering how big their front is. But they really struggle. They've really struggled against the run, just being put in situation. The defenders got a couple of really big plays in the run, and then the Vipers really moved the ball well while running the football. So they're going to really struggle against that. And then I'm a huge fan of Jordan Tayamu. I He's probably the most physically gifted um quarterback in this league i think pj walker's playing the best right now obviously followed by cardell jones but tayamu's got all the he's got the movement skills he's got a really good arm and he seems to be kind of putting it together i know he had two picks against the roughnecks but just overall he's probably my favorite quarterback to watch in this league just because of all yeah and, and one of the interceptions one of the interceptions by tayamu was on a play where he thought he had a free play mm-hmm. where Defender uh, for the Roughnecks jumped off sides and he flung it down there to get in a free play. And then there were uh, a lot of St. Louis fans, and obviously the Battle Hawks players were amazing. Got a flag was thrown there. And I agree with you. Uh, Sam was 6'3, 218, 220. Uh, he's got all the physical tools in the world. He's very raw. He's got a very serious upside as a pro football quarterback. And I think I've been very impressed with how he's played within himself. They've kind of protected him a little bit. But he has the physical tools to be a guy who's not a game manager. He has dynamic physical tools. Oh, so, yeah. uh, it, you know, if you get the mental side of the game, which comes with reps, and I got to give credit to Chuck Long. He was he's, he was initially the quarterback coach for Jordan Tiamo, so mm-hmm. they've had a relationship there since October. But, you know, obviously Long has become the offensive coordinator since Meech and went back to TCU. And I think Long, is, Long has done a very good job with Tiamo to get him to play within the game plan. Oh, yeah. And so um, it's going to be a difficult matchup for New York's front to, to try to, you know, stop the run game of St. Louis and then try to either pressure Tayamu or force him in the mistakes. It's not impossible. Yeah. Um, if you can make mistakes, you want to, you want Jordan to make mistakes. So you want, and so, so that's, that's going to be a big part of New York's game plan is trying to confuse the rookie. Oh, yeah. And I think that's where I'd expect us to hopefully, Jim Herman, John, Herman is mixing up coverages, creating different disguises, and hopefully we bring some exotic blitzes because I think if we can get keep Te'amu in the pocket, of course, because he's a very athletic, very mobile guy, but keep him in the pocket while bringing pressure from a lot of different places, it'll be really good for our defense because he'll be forced to make mistakes. He'll want to get rid of the ball quick and want to make plays offensively. And a little bit of a side note here, but one of my favorite things I've seen, especially in the NFL, is this idea of simulated pressure. It's what Bill Belichick and the Patriots do it very well, where they show that they are going to have like six or seven guys blitzing, but they drop everybody but three of them. So the quarterbacks prepare to get rid of the ball fast, but then you drop three or four guys right at the end of the, right at the snap, and then you only have three guys rushing, and he's still trying to hit in his head. He's still got a limited clock. 
So he gets rid of the ball. Right, and that, 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 that could be that type of scheme. Could, that type of scheme could be very helpful for the Guardians if they're able to execute it against Jordan. I think that's going to be a huge key for the game. Confusing him, getting getting you know he's got he's been pretty damn accurate to, to start off the season, but it's been a lot of high percentage stuff, a lot of quick throws, a lot of easy reads. Jordan has been executing them perfectly, mm-hmm. and so. Do you want to kind of get him to play a little wild? So what you can, how you can do that is to mess with the quarterback mental. So like you're saying with those type of coverages where the simulated pass rush, which looks like it's going to be an all-out blitz, but isn't. Sometimes you can do that in reverse, or it looks like you're dropping into coverage and then send blitzers that he's not expecting. Absolutely. So um, either from the corner, from the nickel, what have you. So um, it's going to be fascinating to see what type of game plan Jim Herman has in place. He's going to have to show because uh, Jordan Tayama right now is like he's working in, on a couple of pages. Yeah. So like, you know, and they have him sticking to a framework of the game plan. And you want to get him outside of his comfort zone. Get him to think and to, um, uh, be frustrated with not knowing what the Guardians are showing him on every play. Oh, yeah. So that's going to be an important aspect of the game. And uh, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how Jim Herman uh, constructs his defense against Chuck Long's offense with Jordan at the helm. All righty. So now we've talked about that. Who do you think is going to win this game? Do you have the Guardians pulling up the upset, or do you think the Battlehawks are going to end up winning? I think the Battlehawks are going to win the game. I'm hoping that New York uh, uh, makes this game competitive. They have to survive the early portion of the game. I think um, I, you don't – both these teams – that uh, both these teams are not really built at the moment to go into a shootout. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the high-scoring 40, 40 to 30 type games. They, I, I think you'll see a low-scoring game, despite the fact that it's indoors and in the dome. Um, New York's got to play clean football. They want to stay in this game. No turnovers. They got to play smart. I think they're going to keep the game competitive. I think, uh, I hope I'm right on this, but I think McLaurin will play better than he did last week. And I think New York will keep the game competitive, but I just think that St. Louis being at home and the way they match up against New York overall, I think I would give them the edge in this particular setting. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with you there. I do think the Battlehawks end up winning this game. My hope is it's just not by a lot because, like you said, this matchup is really bad for the Guardians. Everything that the at everything that the Battlehawks do really well, the Guardians don't do very well when you match it up. So. Right. I'm really hoping we fix that up. I think it starts with stopping the running game, making Teamo do all the work for that team. So if we stop Matt Jones and Teamo even running, if we make him sit in the pocket and make throws, I think we might see one or two mistakes. And it's all going to come down to which team makes the most mistakes offensively. I don't think that either team's going to make a ton of defensive mistakes. So whichever team decides to try to force the issue early, We'll probably end up losing it because they'll get in a, they'll dig themselves a hole, and I'm just hoping it's not Matt McGloin this game. Yeah, and the atmosphere can dictate that. You know, it's like if Matt McGloin's trying to force the issue himself on offense, um, if the team's trying to fight back from a deficit, that can uh, you know they can they can play kind of a sloppy version of football that they did last week. But um, and then on the opposite end, New York would love to go on the road and take a ten nothing lead or a thirteen nothing oh, yeah. or a twelve nothing lead. And then force Jordan to question uh, all his practices leading into the game and all the game planning and uh, get him to, to doubt himself a little bit. So it's a lot of psychological 
a lot of it is psychological, especially with a rookie like Jordan Tamlin. So um, the matchup is not a great one, as you mentioned, as I mentioned in this conversation for New York. But I, I think they're capable. They just uh, obviously the way they played on offense would indicate that they're capable of competing or winning based on the first two weeks of the season. But I think there's enough talent there where they just need to get kind of get the ball rolling uh, in the early portion of the game, and they'll start to build confidence as they go on. Because I think New York has the potential to be very balanced offensively. Oh yeah. If they lay another egg the way they did in DC, then I think Kevin Gilbride has to consider some wholesale changes oh. on, on the offensive side of the ball and decide whether or not, I know he doesn't want to do this, whether or not he wants to reclaim ownership of the offense. Yeah. Joe Brady is taking more of a CEO role with the entire team and, and G.A. Mangus and the offensive staff, Mike Miller, and otherwise have been contributing towards the game plan. Um, if the team struggles again on offense, Joe Brady might have to rethink that. So we'll see, we'll see how it goes. This is a this is a turning point game for the Guardians, one way or the other. Oh, yeah. If they win, if they win, it's going to turn around this season. If they lose, it's going to turn around the makeup of their roster and their team and how they decide to move forward. That's my feeling. Yeah, I can totally see that, and I'm really hoping we end up winning this game. But if we don't, I could definitely see Kevin Gilbride retaking over that offense and kind of building it in his building it in his image more than it already is because I can definitely see the run and gun influence from Jay Mangus. That's actually something I didn't know that when you brought it up that he comes from a um, run and shoot. Kind right. Of he, he's basically a quarterback quarterback for Steve Spurrier and an offensive coordinator under Steve Spurrier, South Carolina. And Mangus has been a longtime college coach now. And so he's bringing a fun and gun element, which, which is great. There's some great elements to that. We saw that in the line with the Orlando Apollos and all that. They were very successful with it. But I think based on New York's talent level, you know, the quarterback, you have to question whether or not McGloin is very confident in the offensive team. Yeah. So there's a lot There's a lot of stuff behind the scenes that New York has to square away. And I think it will help if they get healthier on the offensive line, and it will obviously help if they get to their more important receivers. It's not to disrespect anybody that's currently in the roster, but they get they get Gentry or Nancy back. That'll be a big help for whomever is throwing the football uh, for New York. So uh, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be an interesting. Right? This is this is this is a huge game. I'm fascinated to see how New York comes out swinging. Absolutely. So I'm gonna go ahead and let you go. Thank you for coming on once again, everybody. Mike Mitchell. Make sure you um, look him up on XFLBoard.com. Mike, if you want to go ahead and shout out your social media, we'll go ahead and let you go after that. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, I also write for XFL News Hub. Um, um, and uh, my uh, Twitter handle is uh, MM, which is my initial, XFL Writer, W-R-I-T-E-R. All righty, man. Thank you once again for coming on. After this segment, we're going to go Thanks ahead. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. After this segment, we're going to go ahead and move on to my true accuracy segment. Thank you guys for listening.
does this team need to do on offense to get something going here? We need to change the whole entire game plan at halftime. Okay, what do you need to change about the game plan? What are you, you frustrated know, about? There's just a lot going on right out now. Uh, it's embarrassing for us here as an offense, so a lot of things we want to fix and correct. Thanks. Wow. Changed the entire offensive game plan. Bit of a low snap again. McGloin intercepted. He's picked off down the sideline. Jameer Thurman to the house. Touchdown. Pick six for the D.C. defenders. All right. Since December, I remember bringing it up. And I said we're going to last week. And I, he, I, you know, I don't want to name names, but I, in fact, I just said that you guys called a lot more all your 9 And that was Matt McGloin's interviews on the sideline. Really interesting little tidbit from the beginning to the end. As we all know, it was not his greatest game on Saturday. It's not fun to watch. It was not fun to rewatch a couple times for this segment, our true accuracy segment. I need to get a little jingle for this. I'll figure that out soon. Hopefully, maybe next episode. We'll see what happens. But we're back. Second edition of the true accuracy segment. We're going to be analyzing mostly Matt McGloin's games, considering he played the most. I have formatted this a little bit better, but we're just going to go ahead and get right into it. I've seen a couple comments on Twitter and throughout the time like, hey, is Matt McGloin going to start next week? Should he start next week? Matt McGloin's most likely going to start next week. I talked about this with Mike Mitchell, who I interview in this show. In this show, he even brings it up. Matt McGloin is going to start. That's just what's going to happen. That's what we can expect to happen because he's continuity in offense. They need a veteran leader out there, especially with so many injuries to the wide receiver and lineman positions. He's a veteran presence. I expect him to respond a lot better to pressure and adversity going into next week. And he just also has the probably the best understanding of the offense. He's been in a lot of different offenses. He's worked with Andy Reid. He's worked with the Oakland Raiders. He worked with a couple of really good offensive masterminds. So I expect him to really understand this offense more than some of these other guys probably do. And I expect him to keep starting. And that's why he's probably going to be the starter this next weekend. If he plays like crap against St. Louis, then yeah, you could probably expect to see Marquise Williams in week four. I don't think he has a very long leash, but I do expect him to start and get most of the time against St. Louis. But now we're going to get into the stats. My favorite part of this whole process that I do with charting quarterbacks. We're going to start with what are the stats that stood out in a good way? And let me tell you, there are not a lot of them. We're going to start with our time in the pocket ratio. How I measure time in the pocket is, is he in the pocket for less than three seconds before the ball is out or before he's forced out of the pocket? Or is he in the pocket for longer than three seconds? Last week, he it was about 50-50. I think he was in the pocket for less than three seconds, a little bit more than he was in the pocket for um, more than three seconds. I'm going to go ahead and call it tip less than three or tip more than three from now on, just so you guys get that, get that understanding. Tip means time in the pocket. So he had 17 snaps with a tip of under three. So that's really good. That means he's getting the ball out quick or he's getting away from pressure. He was, of course, sacked a couple times, and there was a lot of outside pressure in this game. But by seeing that he's getting rid of the ball, it shows that he's trying to make quick decisions. Some of those decisions were not always good. 
two of his um, interceptions, I believe, both of them were on snaps where he was in the pocket for more than three seconds, so a tip of over three. So that's a really good thing that you see this offense trying to do is trying to make the ball get out quicker. Was it successful? No. I think McLoyne still had his eyes downfield a little too much, and I think you can kind of see some of that disconnect between the offense and the quarterback there, the offensive coordinator and the quarterback. The next stat that really stood out to me in a good way was the fact that there was very little interior pressure for my starting, for my charting, pardon me. There was only a zero, a 0.04% of, uh, 4% of our um, pressures were interior pressures, very low percentage. There was only one out of the 24 snaps, so it's a really good percentage for our interior pressures. I expect that to stay that way. I really like the interior of our offensive line, especially when Ian Silverman and Garrett Brumfield are healthy. It's just this week they weren't, but they still performed decently considering the situation. There was a couple of miscommunications. One of them led to the single pressure, but I fully expect that to get resolved, especially when we get Garrett Brumfield and Ian Silverman back healthy. And that's it for the good stats. Like I said, this was not a fun game to chart. So, Hopefully we'll get some more good stats this next week against the Battlehawks. I'm not really sure we will. It's going to be a really tough game and a tough matchup for McGloin in this offense. So we'll just have to wait and see with that. But now we're going to get into the not-so-fun part. What stats stand out to me in a bad way? So I didn't include every stat that was charted, but I included a good portion of them because a lot of them were not good. The first one we'll get into, and probably the mo- biggest one from this game, was his turnover-worthy play percentage. It was 13%. So... 13% may not seem very high, but when you only throw 23 passes, well, not even 23 passes, 20 passes, that's really high. That means you've had three turnover plays. It includes his two interceptions and one recovered fumble, the fumble on the snap that he did recover. So he had three total turnover play, turnover-worthy plays, and that's not a good sign. I know last week he had 0%, which was really good, but to see that jump... Not good at all. Usually you want this to be around 5% or less because that shows they're really limiting limiting these turnover-worthy plays. You you only want one turnover-worthy play per game, and that's something I hope they continue to work on because right now he's averaging 1.5 per game. You want to get that down to 1 or below per game. His deep accuracy percentage was 0%. I talked about this in, in, in the interview with Mike Mitchell, I believe, but he just was not accurate. He could not hit the deep ball to save his life. He had guys open, and he just missed them left or right. And one of those, I believe it was the throw to Austin Duke. I believe he was a little bit too close to the sideline. There wasn't much he could do about that. But I still believe you could see that, see the leverage, put that ball on the sideline instead of the middle field where it's at risk of getting picked off. It didn't. It just landed harmlessly. But it was one of his five incompletions, five inaccurate deep passes. Then we'll get to the next one. This one's going to be a really quick synopsis. He had zero TD-worthy plays. He didn't have a chance at a touchdown on any of his throws, so that's really it there. There just wasn't there wasn't opportunities, but he also just missed opportunities. He had possible touchdowns that he could have thrown. There was the one to Austin Duke. There was one to Mikhail McKay up the seam where the guy, he was wide, or no, it was Joe Horn, pardon me, Joe Horn up the seam that he just missed that if he throwed Threw the ball better, it would have been a, it could have been a touchdown. So zero touchdown worthy plays, and then his medium accuracy was also zero percent. He only threw one of those, but zero percent on any of these is not good at all. So he threw his one inaccurate medium pass, 
the pressure number, pressure percentage was 39%. Out of 20 snaps, that's not good at all. Out of 24 snaps, that's not good at all. Most of that was outside pressure. Nine of those, not out of the nine pressures, what was the number? Nine, eight of them were outside pressure, so that's not good at all. You usually want that pressure number to be around 20%. That's usually all you want to allow. It's really tough, especially with a little bit inferior line play. Having a really good offensive line is really hard at any level, and it's going to be especially hard at the level of the XFL because we're dealing with a little bit less talent than the NFL level has. Then we're going to go into his passes out of shotgun. This is going to take me a minute to explain because this is my most concerning thing out of all of this from Saturday. 100% of the passes were out of the shotgun. So at first glance, you're like, oh, they're just throwing it out of the shotgun. That's whatever. But you have to take into account that a majority of their run plays were out of the eye formation. When I'm a defensive coordinator like Jerry Glanville or um, I don't remember the defensive coordinator is going to be for the St. Louis Battlehawks, but if I'm him, I'm watching this game. I'm like, all right, when they're in shotgun, they're throwing the football. I don't care if they run it for five yards a carry on the three times they're in shotgun and they run the ball, but if they're running it 24 out of 27 times, I mean, if they're throwing it 24 out of 27 times out of the shotgun, I'm prepping for the pass every time and I'm much more prepared. So that's something that's worrying. It's way too predictable. You should not be telling the defense what you're doing every time you line up in a shotgun or under center. So that's something I hope G.A. Mangas and Kevin Gilbride look at, see, and fix. You should not be throwing exclusively out of the shotgun, especially with how our team is built. I mean, off air, me and Mike Mitchell talked about this, that you cannot, the way our team is built, you cannot be spreading the ball out, having four wide that's just not how our team is built when you only have five receivers so <laughs> we have four tight ends four running backs five receivers i'd expect almost a heavy run play action deep play action pass based team but that's not what we're showing we're showing a deep vertical spread out team that doesn't fit with our personnel so i'm hoping him and gilbert has noticed that and has talked to mangus about it I don't expect Mangus to give up play calling unless he scores zero, unless he scores seven or less points again this week. If he gets a good 24 point outing, I'd expect Kevin Gilbride to just heap the praise on him. But if Mangus cannot engineer more offense, the hiatus of the blame is going to be on him. I've been on teams with bad offenses before where the defense has been top tier top 10 in the nation when I played for George Fox, top 10 in the nation my freshman year. Our offense continuously failed in big games because they were not willing to innovate and work with our personnel. So fully expect the blame to be heaped on GA Mangus if we continue to score, have low scoring outcomes. I wouldn't be surprised if Kevin Gilbride would take over the offense if that continued to happen. I'd expect the players to continue to ask for that if it happened because a team starts to blame people. It's just a fact. I mean, I heard, I've seen rumors today that the Vipers themselves are not happy with what's going on in their organization for Mark Trestman. The players will start to get angry with the offense, angry with G.A. Mangus, and will not support him as fully as they should because the offense isn't performing. Whether it's a player thing, an execution thing, or a coach thing, the, the blame get puts, gets put on the coach. So I fully expect the 
play calling to change. I fully expect it to adapt and become a little bit less predictable because I just I knew as soon as you go in the shotgun, you're going to throw the football. I know what to prepare for. I can throw extra defensive backs out there without being worried. Maybe this is just the way GM Mangus is like, hey, I'm going to make them prep for the pass, and then we'll just run it all over them. That's what I hope, but I really doubt that's going to happen. So we'll definitely have to wait and see. We'll go and move on to my next stat now before I get into that a little too much. I'm going to make sure I get into that in my next segment where I talk about the game, the the um, preview for the game against St. Louis after this. So I'll make sure I get into that in just a second. But we're going to tackle total accuracy now. He is accurate on 60% of his passes. That number is a little bit inflated because most of his passes were short passes. Like I said, he only threw five deep passes and one medium pass. All those were inaccurate. I might find a way to weigh these more on my accuracy percentage. I don't know how to do that yet. I might make it similar to the NBA's true accuracy percentage. I can't remember exactly what that stat's called, but I know it weighs three-point shots and high-percentage stuff maybe a little bit more because, I mean, low-percentage stuff maybe a little more because those are shots you shouldn't be taking all the time so they need to be a little bit more important when it comes to the accuracy because that's how you find the really elite shooters i'm not sure how that stat works i may start asking around figure out what i can do to make my system a little bit more accurate because 60 percent does seem a little high for how matt mcgloin performed but that is his true accuracy percentage but most of that's inflated from short and short completions and checkdowns. so he was accurate on 80 percent of his short completions and then short attempts, and then 100% of his checkdowns, which combined for, I believe, 12 of his total attempts, those short attempts and those checkdown attempts. So it just goes to show that, hey, you may want to take this number with a grain of salt, but even that, even though it was 60%, you usually want this number to be around 70. Your completion percentage will be a little lower because there will be drops or um, batted or like really great defensive plays, but an accuracy, in pure accuracy, you got to be around 70% as a quarterback to be successful. So hopefully we see that number bounce up. It's a little inflated to 60%. If I were to weigh this somehow, it'd probably be closer to 50. So we'll just have to wait and see how I can figure that out. But I'm hoping with the changes in offense, we can get more efficient. He can get his number up to around 70%, if not higher. My final takeaways from my true accuracy numbers it's definitely one of the first QB performances I've ever charted. Like I've charted quite a few. I charted the AAF almost every game for the AAF, and I've charted a couple of the NFL games that I've watched just to kind of work on my system and get it a little better. And this is one of the worst ones I've ever charted. It's a lot of mental errors for Matt McGloin and also a lot of bad play calling. I mean, it's a mix of both. You can't isolate one or the other. So we have to make sure both of those are held accountable when we watch the game. It's not just Matt McGloin. Matt McGloin had a really bad game. Not going to lie about that. All quarterbacks do have bad games, but the play calling was not good at all. A lot of vertical concepts on third and, third and two or when it was really wasn't necessary, and it really put Matt McGloin at a disadvantage when we're going against a really good pass rush with injured linemen. Now, when we had short concepts, guys would get open like his second interception. Guys got open, but he just decided to make the wrong decision there and throw the ball to the wrong place. So it's a mixture of both. And then it was also just really tough to watch him unravel as the game went along. He continually got frustrated and frustrated. Like we saw at the clip at the beginning, you heard his interview before halftime and then his talk with um, Coach Coach Gilbride, sorry, his talk with Coach Gilbride, 
But I can tell you right now, that's just stuff a normal football player thinks. <laughs> now, should he have said it to the reporter? No. I agree he shouldn't have said it to the reporter, but I can guarantee you the talk on the sideline with Coach Gilbride, every quarterback has had that talk. Like, hey, I'm pointing this out, but nobody's listening. Like, I'm trying to figure this out. I pointed this out earlier this week, but nobody's paying attention. We're getting beat on that. It's just a comment. That's a conversation between a coach and a player that happens all the time. So I'm not mad about his comments. Could he have chosen his words a little differently? Yes. Um, Especially at that halftime interview. That was probably the worst of it. Because I know after his second interception, he was like, hey, that was on me. I made a bad read. So he didn't continually put the blame on everybody else. But we did come in with a bad game plan. First of all, you just watch the play calling. It was not good. Should he have made the comments? No, I don't think so. It puts a lot of pressure on the offensive coordinator and Kevin Gilbride to make changes that they may not deem necessary. So he could have responded a lot better. But the comments themselves, I'm not frustrated at. His response to adversity is what I am. I expect him to respond to things better in the future because he's a veteran guy. He should bounce back. Now, for all the people calling for Matt McGloin's head, I can tell you right now, Marquise Williams is probably not the answer. He didn't play much better. He was only accurate on 62.5% of his passes. I know he had less attempts. I believe he only had like 11, maybe that. But he was still had some really bad misses, especially on two deep passes that were inaccurate. One just sa- sailed over the head, and the other was way too way far out of bounds. He scrambled a lot. He was pressured on around 40% of his snaps. But that was a lot just due to him sitting and waiting because they were longer developing pass plays. We were trying to move the ball down the field. So I just don't know if Marquise Williams is the answer there. I fully expect Matt McGloin to be starting. And that's the end of our true accuracy segment. Thank you guys for listening. I'll have hopefully a new jingle. If you guys got any ideas, if you guys are good at making music, I throw those out to you. Make me a jingle for true accuracy statement. Just a little quick, maybe 10 second thing. I don't expect to get anything back. I don't have enough listeners for that. But thank you guys for listening. We're going to go to a break and then I'll come back with a preview for the St. Louis game. Right, we're back from break after the great segment on the true accuracy of Matt McGloin and a little bit on Marquise Williams. We're going to go ahead and get into now our game preview, and I'm going to go ahead and start with our defense. We're going to start with the defensive musts, and then we're going to get into the defensive don'ts, and then we'll get into offensive musts and offensive don'ts. Then I'll go into most important players of the game, and then a new segment I'll do at the very end that I'm going to continue to do as the season goes along. So, defensive musts. First things first, we have to make Jordan Taylor uncomfortable. That was one of the biggest things that people, when they were scouting him for the NFL, noticed that he gets uncomfortable very easily, and when he gets uncomfortable, he makes mistakes. That's the first thing we have to do. We have to include virus coverages and blitzes, and we have to blitz him a lot. That's what we have to do. We have to make him think fast. If he thinks faster than he can process, he will make mistakes. He will force throws. And that's just what we have to do. We just have to make sure Tam who's uncomfortable throughout the entire game and isn't able to get in the rhythm. Because once he gets in the rhythm, his arm talent and his size and his athleticism can really hurt us. So making sure he's uncomfortable with diverse blitzes that we've thrown out there before and can do. That means blitzing safeties, blitzing corners, blitzing multiple linebackers, even simulated pressures, which I talked about with my Mike Mitchell, including simulated pressures like 
showing five guys up and then dropping three of them and only rushing two. That makes Tayamu think more than maybe he's used to, and then we can confuse him. That's the biggest thing is confusing him and making him uncomfortable. I can't, I'm not saying Tayamu's not a smart athlete. He probably knows more football than I do considering the level he's at, but it's just a way we can confuse him because in-game, processing in-game is a lot different than your football knowledge out of it. So mess up his process, mess up how he processes coverages and blitzes and pressures and we can make him make mistakes the next thing we got to do is we got to stack the box against the run that's st louis's bread and butter it's almost the complete opposite of their original team the st louis rams when they were in their heyday with the greatest show on turf they are very much more of a ground and pound run the football team so we have to trust our defensive backs they're good in man-to-man coverage use that the St. Louis team does not have really speedsters other than LaDamian Washington. DeMorne Pearson is shifty, but he's not speedy. That is the only speedster they have is LaDamian Washington. So we got to trust our guys against them and make sure they're able to play man-to-man coverage. Let them man up because they can do it. Jamar Summers, great man-to-man corner. Bryce Jones has shown a good ability to be a, a man-to-man corner. Renton Tejada thrives as a man-to-man corner. So... Let's make sure they're able to do that, and then allow our, that allows our linebackers to play downhill in the run, especially when they know their responsibility. It's like, do I have this guy man, or am I going downhill against the run? So allowing that will give the linebackers a lot more freedom to make plays against the run, and I think that's what we have to do. Run a lot more man, make sure we're able to make plays against the run. And then the last thing the defensive, defense has to do, rotate the pass rushers. I know we don't have a very deep defensive line. That's one of the flaws in our team. It's the worst part of our defense is the defensive line. There's good athletes there. They're very technical, very skilled, but they're all bigger guys. They tend to get tired quicker, so we have to rotate them more and more, even though it's a little bit harder in this fast play clock that the XFL has. But we have to make sure we're able to rush the passer. So by rotating pass rushers and putting speed on the edge. So guys like maybe Jawan Johnson, who spent some time rushing that from the edge, maybe Ryan Moyer is a little bit faster than like maybe Kayvon Walker. Putting guys like that on the edge and then make moving Bummy Rotini inside so he can go against guards and the inside shoulders of tackles could be a really good move because that could get quicker pressure onto Jordan Tayamu and allow us to make plays on that side of the ball. So like I said, Move, move Jordan, um, Juwan Johnson, maybe to the edge, allow him to rush the passer a little bit. He's a little bit quicker, a little bit faster guy. Maybe move Bummy Rotini inside a little bit more, get him some more snaps from there so he can go against guards and make plays there. The only problem with that is maybe he'll struggle against the run a little bit, but we just have to wait and see. We have to get him reps there. So there's that option. Then we got to look for speed on the team nine. I mean, we have to look at the edge position. We saw that it was not getting home against Cardell Jones. So we have to look to adapt and evolve at that position. And looking for speed with Team 9 is probably our best bet. Now I'm going to go ahead and get into our defensive don'ts. First thing we can't do is miss tackles. We missed way too many tackles against the defenders. And I fully expect the team to really break down on that and make sure these guys are tackling better. That means cornerbacks who missed a couple tackles, especially early in the game, just because they weren't being physical enough. Jamar Summers, one of his biggest flaws in this game. I love his ability to cover. I think he's really good doing that is he's not physical, physical against the run. When I look at corners, it's not the most important thing. Obviously my first thought through my mind isn't, Oh, he has to be physical against the run, but it's important. You have to be able to play the run. You have to be able to make tackles. I don't care if you're ankle biting. I don't care if you're meeting a guy head up. You have to be able to 
make the play, make the tackle, and make that a priority. So that's something he has to improve on is that tackling aspect of it, and so do all our defensive backs. The only really good one on this last game was A.J. Hendy and Andrew Soro. They really did a good job there. But all our other corners have to really work on that and make plays in that side of the ball. Um, another defensive don't is you cannot let Tayamu get outside of the pocket. You have to stay in your pass rush lanes, which let me explain that really quickly. Pass rush lanes are basically the lane you're supposed to stay in when you're rushing the passer. So a defensive tackle is supposed to say, let's say on the backside of the inside of the forward shoulder, while the other ta- the other tackle on the quarterback's right has to come to the inside of the quarterback's shoulder or at his face. The edge rusher has to come to his back shoulder, and so does the other edge rusher. So it's just kind of lanes to keep the guy in the pocket so he doesn't rush out, make plays there. And then you just have to get to him fast and aim for the upfield shoulder. The biggest thing is aim for the upfield shoulder so he cannot rotate out and make plays on the run, throwing the football or running the football. And one way you keep Tayamu in the pocket is blitzing from the outside too. So making sure you blitz from the outside, blitzing outside in allows you to send corners and outside linebackers that force him to step up into the pocket where our big guys are filling up the gaps, taking on blockers, and making sure Tamu doesn't have this quick escape by rolling out. He has to fight through traffic to get to the line of scrimmage again. And then the last thing we cannot do is we cannot run a lot of nickel or dime against this team. They will run all over us if we do that. So the biggest thing, we need to stay in a 3-4, and we have to keep guys like Frank Ginda and Ben Heaney in who are great against the run. They really thrive against the run. They're tacklers. They don't miss. So making sure they're in against on most plays against the run is going to be vital to how we play this game and how we play on defense. I don't want to say this, but I think we're going to have to hold the St. Louis team to under 15 points if we're going to win this game. I don't expect us to score a lot of points. I'm going to get in that to a minute, but just the way the, the way the matchup is, I really expect us to try to focus defensively and try to hold them to under 15 points, which I think we can do. It's just going to be really tough. Now we're going to move on to the offensive side of the ball, and we're going to go to our offensive musts. The first thing we have to do is change the scheme. So that means more running. I know it's not as fun as watching us throw the ball all over the place, down the field, but it's what we have to do to get Matt McGloin comfortable. So we have to run more, and then we have to have more short passes and play action. We ran zero play action passes. It's something I didn't highlight in my um, first the true accuracy segment, but we did not run a single play action pass on Saturday. That's just not wise. Play action passes are very efficient. All the analytics say that that's what you should be running. You don't need the run to be able to do a play action pass. I mean, I saw just on the film a couple times myself, whenever a linebacker sees a play action pass, he gets sucked into the run action and it leaves gaps in the middle of the field. Easy throws that any quarterback can take advantage of. So it's really key to run play action, run short passes to get Matt McGloin comfortable. And that means running the ball a little bit more. It's way we were effective running the football. So it's something we're going to have to do. The next thing we're going to have to do is utilize the running backs. So that means any way we can get the ball in the running backs hands. They're very talented. Tim Cook, Darius Victor, both really good backs. Hopefully we see Justin Stockton active this game. Because once again, like I've said multiple times, I'm a huge fan of his game. Really think he should be active and playing. I think we should have all four backs active and playing, considering we usually only run three receivers out there. So we need four or five, maybe. We can inactivate one of the tight ends. We have three active. We only need two. And we'll see where it goes from there. So 
hopefully we get all four running backs active. We can rotate them more and more to keep them fresh, keep fresh legs. It's really vital for a running back. And then we can get the ball through the screen game, running the football, short passing game. There's just a lot of different ways we can get them the ball. So that's one key is utilizing those running backs. The last thing, help the offensive tackles. Eight of the pressures that happened this past Saturday were outside pressures. We only had one really interior pressure. So make sure guys like Jaron Jones gets help against especially speed rushers. That's where he struggles. He tends to lunge. And he gets beat off of that quick hand will swipe. And if you're lunging and you're on the ground, so make sure there's a tight end there to help that help him against that speed rusher because he can handle power rushers. It's just those speed rushers that he really struggles with. And then also just getting Garrett Brumfield and Ian Silberman back. It helps so much with communication, making guys feel more comfortable on the line. And then also just helps with slides. I mean, if you have Garrett Brumfield sliding over to you, it's a little bit better than maybe having Avery Young or. Damian Mama sliding over to you because that's a guy you've had slide your way multiple times, Garrett Brumfield, because he's been with the team very long. Same with Ian Silverman. So getting those guys back helps with offensive line communication and the overall offensive line play. And it'll help the offensive tackles too. And then two things we can't, three things, pardon me, we cannot do if we're on offense. We cannot pass exclusively from the shotgun. It's ridiculous that this even happened. It's a really big flaw in our game. You cannot just... You can't just continually pass from the shotgun without running anything out of the eye. It doesn't make any sense. Limits your options play calling wise. Becomes way too predictable. Anytime you line up in the shotgun, they're like, oh, it's a pass. We'll just be ready for that. We'll just send the dogs and we'll get a sack or we'll get an interception because we have dropped seven guys back, seven or eight guys back, and there's nobody open. So it just doesn't make sense from a play calling standpoint. Um, you can run from the shotgun too, which will make it a little bit more diverse. And then overall, just passing from different formations, running from the shotgun creates more diversity and allows you to make a bunch of different plays from that opens up your playbook. So I don't understand why we've passed exclusively from the shotgun on Saturday. Hopefully that doesn't happen again. If it does happen again, I will actively be calling for GA Mangus's head. I'm not usually one to call for somebody's job, but if you're at the pro level, calling exclusively pass plays from the shotgun. Now I'm a big proponent of shotgun spread out offenses, but even those offenses run plays, run run plays from the shotgun. We ran maybe three run plays in the shotgun two 24 pass plays. And that's just kind of ridiculous, especially at a pro level. We're not running the air raid here. We have four tight ends and four running backs versus five receivers on the roster. So I'll probably end up calling for Mangus's head to at least stop the play calling and give Kevin Gilbride. He's probably a great quarterback coach. Manga says he's probably um, a great kind of offensive coordinator type, but I will call for Kevin Gilbride to take over play calling because he has that experience and he just, he'll be a little bit more diverse. He'll run a little bit more under center. He'll run a little bit more of a power offense, which our team seems to be built for. So it'll be interesting to see how that develops. When I chart the game, I'll let you guys know if I see it again, because that'll be ridiculous. But I'm not one to call for a guy's job. I don't want him to get fired. I just want him to lose play calling responsibilities if it happens again. Another thing that's bothering me with this offense, continue. we cannot continue calling vertical concepts on short down, short yardage downs. So I remember a couple times, it was a third and two. It's the first interception from Matt McGloin. We ran four verts and on a third and two, and it ended up being an interception because he threw it into a cover two, a cover one look. It's not a good look. You shouldn't throw that ball, but he did. And it was an interception. But 
And then another down later, there was like a third and five, right? You can run a slant, which Mikhail McKay is really effective at, or a quick out or something. We ran all our routes 10-plus yards down the field. There was a go and two outs, both at 10 to 12 yards. And it doesn't really make sense in that situation. You could run a quick hitch that might get open. You could run a smash concept that could be open. There's a lot of different options there, but you limit yourself when you're just like, we're going to stay exclusively vertical and not take advantage of the entire field. So hopefully we kind of change that mentality and really spread the ball around a little bit more, put it in different spots around the field, run a lot of more short yardage concepts. I'm usually a very vertical guy offensively. I like throwing the ball deep, but when you're in these short yardage situations, you got to make sure you're doing short yardage plays. You just got to get the yards to gain. There's a famous Drew Brees quote. I'm not a fan of Drew Brees. I'm a Panthers fan, but there's a Drew Brees quote. Think first downs, not touchdowns, and you'll eventually get the first down. Like, so think first downs, not touchdowns. That's kind of my quote for the offense on this, for this game specifically is think first downs, not touchdowns. The last thing we cannot do, we cannot abandon the play action. I talked about this when we were um, in the first one. The play action is supremely effective. It's one of the most effective pass plays in the NFL. It's one of the most effective plays in the NFL. So it's a really great way to get easy throws for a rattled QB. It helps you balance the offense. You do not need to be able to run the ball to run play action. It's been proven many, many times. A lot of people still think that you need to be able to run the ball effectively to run play action. That's not true. You can run the ball. Run play, Running play action, if anything, makes running the football more effective because these guys start getting hesitant on rushing towards the ball. So you could argue that you should run play action before you decide to start effect, effectively running the ball. But that's an argument for another time. I'm just saying we cannot abandon it. We have to run play action pass plays. It's a key component to any offense nowadays. So hopefully we don't abandon the play action. I know a lot of these are scheme-wise, play-calling-wise, because that's all that you can really control as a coach. But obviously in there, I'll talk about this when we get to kind of our top and uh, most important offensive player. But you cannot have Matt McGloin making mistakes. You can't turn over the ball. Those are kind of obvious. So I went for a little bit more specific things, a little bit more scheme-wise things that some people may not be looking for. But anyways, we're going to go into our most important players on each side of the ball. Most important defensive player, Ben Heaney. He has to be effective against the run. It's as simple as that. He cannot miss tackles. He cannot be guessing like he did sometimes against the defenders. He has to be there in the run. He's our most talented linebacker from a speed run a run defense perspective. So he has to be able to do all that. And he may be tasked with spying Jordan Tamu, who's a very mobile quarterback. So he has to be ready for that task and ready to make those plays. The most important offensive player, 100% is Jaron Jones. We're going against a very talented front seven in St. Louis. They got a lot of really good guys like Andrew Ankara and a couple other pass rushers that are really good. So he has to play at a high level. It's as simple as that. He's not played very well against speed rushers in the past. He's done well against Pat Strong. Um, uh, pardon me. He's got, done very well against power rushers, guys who don't have the great bend or speed. But against speed rushers, he's really struggled because he tends to lunge and he misses those. So he needs to make sure he's going to get some help probably because he didn't have a great week last week. Probably some chips from the running back or chips from a um, tight end. So expect him to play better. Hopefully he takes advantage of that help and is able to make plays as a pass protector. And that's why he's my most important player because this whole offense, our entire passing game is really going to hinge on him playing well because they're going to put a lot of pressure on him from a speed standpoint that he has to adjust to. And then my new segment in this game previews in the game previews is going to be who has the most pressure on them. And it's going to be a new thing for the coaching staff. Which coach has the most pressure on them for their group or their side of the ball or 
for them to perform. And this one's obvious. It's G.A. Mangus, offensive coordinator. Like I said, if he stays as exclusively in the shotgun when passing the ball, if he stays no play action, if he stays very one-dimensional, his head's going to be called for. He has to call a much more balanced game. He has to score more than 20 points in this game if he wants his head not to be called for because he only scores 16 points offensively this offense does. Matt McGowan's going to get some heat, but I know in the locker room, it's going to be G.A. Mangus because that's how locker rooms work. If you're a player and this offense is not performing, right? I'm a defensive player. My team's playing well. We've held the past two teams to – we've held the Vipers to no touchdowns, and then the we've held the – what's their names? The defenders to two or three touchdowns. That's only 20 points. I expect my offense to be able to put up 20-plus points. That's your entire job. You cannot be putting up less than 20 points. And if they do that consistently on a consistent basis, like they have done the past two weeks, the team starts to, the defense starts to question the offense's ability and starts to get in their own head about, hey, we have to do everything. And then when they're not able to, they're like, hey, it's because we're on the field all the time, which is partially true. And then once that starts happening, they start blaming the offense, blaming the offensive coordinator mostly because they believe in their teammates. It's the coaching that fails them. So GM Mangos will start getting a lot of kickback in the locker room and in Response to that, I expect if we don't score points here soon consistently, Kevin Gilbride will take over this offense. I'm not saying call for Kevin Gilbride or GM Mangus's job. I'm just saying he can lose this locker room very quickly if his offense does not score points. So expect that to change. Expect this to build. Um, hopefully he calls a much better game. Like I said, no, you cannot pass exclusively from the shotgun, and you cannot abandon the play action. These are kind of tenets of offensive football nowadays. So... Just got to be more balanced. That's as simple as that. That's why he's the guy on the hot seat for me as an offensive, as an offensive coordinator, as an offensive staff member, as a coaching member. So that's why he's my most, he's the coach with the most pressure on on this game. So last but not least, who's going to win this game? Sadly, I think it's going to be St. Louis. Uh, they have played better in their two games. They have not been blown out. <laughs> they played competitively against Houston. D looks like the best team in the league. So I'd expect them to win, but I expect to be competitive. I don't think the Guardians are going to come out flat after getting their ass whooped. Sorry, didn't, but they got their ass whooped against the defenders. So I expect them to come out really strong, hopefully defensively especially. Offensively, I'm not sure yet. It's going to be a mixed bag in my mind. But do you think St. Louis is going to win the biggest matchup in this game for the Guardians? Is going to be their front seven, their front five versus St. Louis's front seven. Whoever has a better game in that department, whether it's the Guardians' offensive line or St. Louis' front seven, is most likely going to win this game because keeping Matt McLoin comfortable and feeling safe and ready to make good decisions is the most important part of this game, and that all relies on this front five of the Guardians. So, if we get Ian Silverman and Garrett. Garrett Brumfield back, I'm going to feel a lot more confident. Right now, I'm not very confident we can pull this out. Just a bad matchup for us overall. So that's going to be the end of the episode. I'm going to have your outro here in a minute. I haven't set that up as of recording this now, but I'll have your outro here in a minute. Thank you, guys. We'll go to break really quick.
right, so it looks like our show is finally coming to a close. You can tell by the music. Sorry about that, guys. Every show's got to end. We'll be back next week for sure. First things first, though, I want to thank some of the fans that have been on Twitter interacting with me. First, I'm going to thank Wayward Spartan. He's been fun to talk to when it comes to football. He really interacted very much with my film reviews that I release on Wednesdays. So I want to thank him for interacting with me. I would give you his at, but it's really confusing. There's a couple X's. It looks like a Xbox gamer tag from back in the back in the day. The next person I want to thank is at EOM Rules. Thanks for the compliment. Short and sweet. I love it. Um, make sure you go ahead and leave a rate and review if you really enjoy the show. I really appreciate it. And I hope you do the same for all the shows I shouted out. They're great resources when it comes to a team-by-team basis. And then just overall, thanks everybody for the support. I've gotten four reviews, all both all four five-star, which I really appreciate on Apple Podcasts. Um, make sure you guys follow the show on Twitter at TGP underscore podcast. You can do the same on Instagram. I'm not as active on Instagram, so mainly go on Twitter for that. We've recently passed 200 followers. Let's see if we can get to 300 even faster. If you have any questions about the show or what I do, go ahead and email the show at the guard post podcast at gmail.com. I'm also planning to include a fan question segment in the future. So if you want to email these, me those questions, or you can put the hashtag ask TGP, the TGP is all uppercase on Twitter, and I'll find those questions and I can answer them on the show. If I get enough, I'll pro- I'm probably include it next week in the show. So go ahead and throw those out there. Last thing, thank you, XFL Newsroom. Thank you for the support you've given me and thank you for the platform you've given me to build this show up. Make sure everybody go follow them at XFL uppercase N Newsroom. They've been fantastic they're fantastic they have a bunch of podcasts on their network and they also release great articles throughout the week and then hey thank you stay on duty guardians fans enjoy this weekend hopefully we pull out the win